Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. Mothers, daughters, sisters, lovers, femmes and friends. Five incredible LGBTQI plus writers share a personal tale about their relationship to womanhood. Intimate, considered and, as always, rooted in community. Hosted by Maeve Marsden, recorded live at the Sydney Opera House for All About Women 2022. Good evening. I would also like to acknowledge that we meet today on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay respects to Elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Yes. Good evening. Welcome. This is the smallest crowd we've had for Queer Stories because everyone got COVID at Mardi Gras. Yay! I was like, I don't know if anyone's going to come, but some of you are here. Did you not go to the parties? Did you wear a mask? Are you my little introverted Queer Stories fans who I love so much? I don't understand your ways, but I'm glad you come to my shows. Welcome. Welcome to Queer Stories for All About Women, the Opera House's International Women's Day Festival, now in its 10th year. My life has been shaped by loving women and by being loved by women. I was raised by lesbian mothers. I gleefully attended an all-girls high school and showed very little interest in the kids at the boys' school across the road. I studied theatre at a university that had a seven-to-one ratio of women to men. Um, that should have been glorious for me, but it just meant that the guys in the minority were like elevated in status. And I have horrific memories of two young men who would sing a song, seven-to-one ratio, increasing your chances of fellatio at every open mic night. Every open mic night, good times. When I finished uni, I found a big group of queer women to befriend in Sydney, making our weekly pilgrimage to the bank and the Sly Fox, having high drama makeouts and breakups in Newtown's gutters. I started, yeah, one of my exes probably. Um, I started working. Thank you, I appreciate you all coming to my shows too. I started working in events management a career dominated by women, and when I started performing in my mid-twenties, I chose cabaret, an art form dominated by women with a cheerful smattering of gay men. <laughs> I am a woman, I love that for me, I am a big old lesbian and gay lady. All of that said, I felt somewhat uncomfortable at first situating queer stories in a womansy festival. Despite having gravitated to women's spaces in my youth, I now thrive most in mixed queer spaces, where men, women and non-binary people rub shoulders, rub whatever body parts we're allowed to under the current COVID restrictions. I'm proud that Queer Stories has always had a mixed audience, because for too long, LGBTQI plus spaces were segregated along alleged gender lines, defining our communities by who we fucked, and in turn, making all of our spaces an odd fit for many trans and non-binary people, not to mention the bisexuals. Won't somebody please think of the bisexuals? <laughs> Gender in our community is like a funny beast. It's this vital ingredient in all of our identities, but simultaneously an irritant in that the rules and boundaries were set, not by us, but by other people. Those normie bores who decide the gender of my eight-month-old baby depending on what they're wearing that day. If it's pink, it's, isn't she pretty? And they really are a very pretty baby. 
I'm as shocked as anyone. I looked so weird as a child. Uh, got a pretty one. If my baby's wearing blue, it's what a big, beautiful boy. And they are alarmingly big. My back is fucked. And, um, and beautiful. But no one ever wants to comment on how big they are when they're being read as a girl because, God forbid, we imply a girl is too large or takes up too much space. Their blue floral onesie just fucks with people. No one knows what to do. <laughs> Unable to categorise the frankly gorgeous creature. I mentioned that my baby was cute. I will move on from this at some point. Tonight, I didn't want to define this show by calling it a women's queer stories, and I sure as hell wasn't going to attempt an all-women lineup. I did, however, want to offer our storytellers a chance to consider womanhood from a queer perspective, from their own perspective, and consider and celebrate women in their lives and show us how queers might inhabit a space and a festival like this. Often I think the beauty of queer and of being queer is being able to hold contradictions in our hands, to sit with both, I love women, I have been loved by women, women are to be celebrated, and women is not a category that can be defined. Uh, femininity and womanhood are not owned by anyone, and queerness offers us a reminder to examine the dominant cisgender heterosexual white feminism for its gaps in ideology and its failure to represent us all. I assure you we are not here for short lectures on gender, uh, though we're here for stories, because if there's another thing queers can do, it's deftly serve our politics with a side of pathos, sneak ideas into narrative, and disarm a listener with our charm, all the while luring them over to the dark side. <laughs> I have, welcome, front row, welcome, come on in. Um, whilst people are coming in, I realise I was meant to say, if you're an Auslan user and you find yourself not in the right seat for a view of our beautiful Auslan interpreters, Leah and Nat, feel free to move. There is space over that side if anyone needs to. Yeah, Leah and Nat. Round of applause for Leah and Nat. Other artists have writers that are like, I need beer and I need red M&Ms. Mine is like, I need my specific Auslan interpreters, Leah and Nat. So... They're my writer. My writer dies. I have five absolutely charming storytellers here for you tonight. A gaggle of total dreamboats. To kick us off, we'll welcome the first one to the stage. Oh, I'm going to talk about them first, but thank you for the... I really like that you're all here for preemptive clapping. Applause is welcome. I don't know who you are, but I'm enjoying you. There's a specific enthusiasm coming from that. You're definitely not one of my exes. Professor Sandy O'Sullivan is a Wiradjuri transgender non-binary person in the School of Indigenous Studies and the Centre for Global Indigenous Futures at Macquarie University. They are a 2020 to 2024 ARC, I've never focused on a project that long apart from queer stories, but a four-year <laughs> ARC Senior Future Fellow with a project titled Saving Lives, Mapping the Influence of Indigenous LGBTIQ Creative Artists. Since 1991, they have taught and researched across gender and sexuality, museums, the body, performance, design, and First Nations identity. Please make Sandy very, very welcome. Hello. Uh, thank you. Thanks to the always owners of the land on which um, this beast of an opera house resides, this land is not ceded, so I acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to all their elders. Uh, yeah, so I'm a trans non-binary Wiradjuri person. 
For me, relationality is everything. Trying to make things work while mostly failing and joking along the way has actually been my super strength. Um, I'm going to talk about it a bit tonight. I left school in the 1970s at 13. I knew the system wasn't designed for me, but I wanted to learn, and, and you know, for what it's worth, I'm, I am a professor now, so there's that. <laughs> but some things, truthfully, are not about the amount of time that you put in. Sometimes it's the stuff along the way, the revelations and the joy, and even the truth. So I spent a light lifetime, well, not quite, because I'm still living it, <laughs> trying to be a woman. And it never worked out, never, um, because it's not who I am. But I'd love to tell you, actually, about three women, this is what I'm talking about tonight, that reminded me that my relationship to them wasn't contingent on me being something that I'm not. My favourite stories of these clever women involves the long game, a memory of an event, a bit of wordplay, so that's insider language. Um, and the idea of knowing and joking over time it's this remembering, recalling, retelling, embellishing, um, and it's often called sisterhood, but for me, I'll need a different naming. And it's helped along by the way that Kim Tallbear talks about relationality. It might have taken me an age to work out who I am, but I grew up with a mother who encouraged me to be that person, even when the world wasn't quite ready, and definitely I wasn't. She spent my life telling me to be free of the expectations of others because she knew who I really was. With Alzheimer's and struggling to remember things, Mum told me exactly that weeks before she died. Mum's humour was always fun and it was a little bit self-deprecating, which I may have adopted. And she knew when to take things seriously and when to joke. Mum used to tell this story of having scarlet fever before the availability of antibiotics, so they didn't come in really until the mid-40s. The doctor at the time sent her home telling my grandmother to put Mum in front of the fire, give her some tea and hope for the best. Mum, feeling sorry for herself, said to my grandmother, I'm poorly, aren't I, Mama? which my grandmother found hilarious. Um, Mum would often recall this and retell this as a memory of her overly dramatic childhood self. At the same time, she absolutely could have died. <laughs> you know, she had poor eyesight her entire life because of that fever. But the retelling of it became important. In Mum's retelling, she saw her own true self, how she came to make sense of the world, that she needed some time and needed some sympathy and also needed a laugh, that laugh from her mother. Weeks before mum died, she was really sick. Um, I said to her, you're poorly, aren't you, mama? It was a bit cheeky. Through everything, pain, fear, and the fog that comes with end-stage Alzheimer's, she remembered and she laughed because of course she did. Professor Bronwyn Carlson is my colleague, uh, a staunch Aboriginal woman and queer ally. Just by example, um, she set up and funded an entire international symposium on Indigenous queer performance, the first of its kind, even though it wasn't her field, just because she wanted to support a PhD student. Amazing person. A number of years ago, I led Bronwyn to Connecticut to see the Severed Arm that's severed arm, of a 13th century saint, uh, Saint Edmund, in fact. 
I can imagine now that you're wondering how this is either a queer story or a story that celebrates womanhood, um, or even Brom one. Um, so, so far we have me, a non-binary person, and St Edmund, a bloke who died nearly a thousand years ago, whose arm is housed on a small island off an island that's shared with the Catholic Psych Institute, a place where priests are rehabilitated, <laughs> before they find another parish to move them to. But just stay with me, <laughs> I know, <laughs> again, queer stories. I knelt down in front of the glass that housed St Edmund's mummified arm, which actually looks a lot like an arm. Bronwyn, Bronwyn came over to me and, and stood there waiting very respectfully, and I said, hang on, I'm just getting a selfie. She, of course, had thought I was praying, so when I said this, Bronwyn immediately started cackling in this really quiet chapel, and suddenly she was relieved of the weight of the world that had taken its toll in the days before as she learnt of the passing of a close family member. I needed that laugh, she said. Speaking relationally, Bronwyn is my Aboriginal academic ride or die, actually just ride or die. <laughs> We look to deeper meanings, laugh, see that someone, sometimes it's entirely inexplicable, the things that we're laughing about, laugh some more as we make fun of all things colonial and all things gender. And we both know that sometimes it takes going to an island, off an island, off uh, actually Turtle Island, to see the bizarre nature of the colonial project that can be the best distraction ever. When I came out to Bronwyn about my gender, her response was, that's great news. We still joke about St Edmund. Last year I wrote a scathing piece on how the Catholic Church has recently published edicts around transgender people, ignoring their own trans saints, there's at least 15 of them, originally canonised because of their transness. Bronwyn read it and sent me two words, St Edmund. My sister Gina, just had a birthday. Uh, she wrote on Facebook that I will be 59 forever. An insider joke on not agreeing to turn the next decade a riff on 39 forever, right? But it was also a reminder that she won't live another year. Gina, a clever, incredibly funny Wiradjuri mother, grandmother and great-grandmother, will join mum in the hereafter too soon. As she would say in her own dreaming. Through this last part of her life, she's made humour and adventure her mainstay, because of course she has. She's reminded me often that we can only be the people that we are, um, but we can keep expecting more from everyone else. <laughs> and we can keep doing more. Yeah, why not? Um, and we can keep doing more. We can do everything. Her relationality has made me so grateful to have insights into the ways our lives can be lived. She's also pretty queer. She bucks the ideas that people have of her as an Aboriginal mother, grandmother, or great-grandmother, and in the final act of her life, she's doing and saying all of the things that remind us that humour and joy in life are absolutely the best gift. So we're catching up this Thursday, staying at an Airbnb that has two beds, one smaller than the other. Gina is called dibs on the big one uh, by saying, I'm dying of cancer, you have more Airbnbs in your future. <laughs> and in the way that siblings are, I responded with, fuck off. Um, and we laughed, of course. There's no taboos, there's just relationality. And I'm getting the bigger bed. 
Thank you so much, Sandy. Next up, Debbie Millman is an author, educator, curator, and host of the podcast Design Matters, one of the first and longest running podcasts running for the past 17 years. Debbie is the author of seven books, also the co-owner and editorial director of printmag.com. Debbie co-founded the world's first graduate program in branding at the School of Visual Arts in New York City in 2010, and I might ask her afterwards to help with the Queer Stories branding, which I haven't updated in six years of running this event. <laughs> Debbie's writing and illustrations have been published widely. She's conducted visual storytelling workshops all over the world and is a frequent speaker on design and branding. She's currently working with actor and activist and super hot lady Mariska Hargitay's Joyful Heart Foundation. <laughs> Please welcome Debbie Millman. Thank you, Maeve. It's such an honor to be here. Um, this is a story that I wrote about a woman that I met in the very first job I had after graduating college, and uh, it's a story called Penelope. My first job after I graduated in 1983 paid me $6, $6 an hour. I was doing what would now be considered old school paste up and layout for a fledgling cable magazine. And because I enjoyed it so much, I couldn't believe that I was getting paid to do this special thing that I loved. I never wanted to leave the office. I was the first person in every morning and I blissfully stayed way into the night. The evenings in the office were my favorite. I would busy myself drawing picture boxes with a rapidograph, but this activity was simply a shroud to eavesdrop on the real designers sitting in the bullpen as they compared notes on the latest issue of the Soho News or who was going to see Richard Hell or Patti Smith at CBGB's that weekend. I knew I was out of my league and I knew they were better than me, but I projected the fantasies I had of what my life could be onto their lives and imagined I was one of them, but still me, only better. What I coveted most was the easy confidence they had in their design ability, and while I worked on mine, I watched and waited and wished for a moment when they might accept me. Everything changed when Penelope was hired. Penelope was tall and thin, and she had a swingy brunette bob with lazy bangs that brushed the tips of her eyelashes. She had the coolest hosiery I had ever seen and sported stockings in fuchsia and yellow and blue. Some had stripes, some had geometric patterns, some had textures that allowed you to see through to her long, pale legs. Penelope was so much taller than me, and when we met, I felt her squint, trying to figure me out. In that instant, I knew she didn't like me. Penelope was everything I wasn't. She was lean and breezy, incredibly chic, slightly haughty. And she was smart and sardonic and droll. I, on the other hand, was chubby and overeager, I bit my nails and wore gray corduroy gaucho skirts with matchy-matchy heels. It was 1983. <laughs> Penelope had an Italian boyfriend she lived with in a swanky uptown loft. I lived in a fourth floor tenement railroad flat and had to pass through my married roommate's bedroom to get to mine. 
Everyone liked Penelope, and her arrival brought on a fiery jealousy I never felt before. I wanted to look like Penelope. I wanted to dress and talk like Penelope. If I could at the time, I would have wanted to be Penelope. Suddenly, my six-hour job wasn't enough. Becoming a good designer wasn't enough. I needed to buy new clothes and new shoes, and I needed a new haircut and new thighs and a new life. Everything about me was utterly wrong. I didn't have enough money to buy the clothes I wanted, but I bought them anyway and charged them to my brand new American Express card. But when I went to work in my new outfits, I still felt shabby next to Penelope, and I knew that no matter what I did and how much I tried to change who I was, I would never be like Penelope and I hated myself even more. When I opened my American Express card later that month, I felt nauseous. I didn't have enough money to pay it, so I asked my mother for a loan. She didn't have the money either, but she gave me what she had after I swore I would repay her. And though I managed to scrape by, I never seemed to have as much money as I needed. I wanted new things, and I kept wanting more. I told myself if I could just save $1,000, everything would be okay. I would pay my bills and buy new things, and I would feel better about myself, and I would be secure. I would feel safe. And with that, despite the fact that I actually still loved my job, I started thinking that perhaps I should try to find another one that paid me better. And I did. Shortly thereafter, I was offered a job at a real estate development company in Westchester as their director of marketing. It was a big title with a big increase in salary. Now I would be making $25,000 a year, and it came with a car. I took it. Everyone congratulated me on my good fortune and the potential of this prestigious new opportunity. But after the last day at my old job, after saying goodbye to Penelope, I went straight home and, fully dressed, climbed into bed, pulled the blankets over my head, and cried. I hated my new job for the entire time I was employed there. I hated the work, and I hated real estate, and it took me a whole year to save $1,000 I needed to ensure my financial security. I thought about this money every day driving the long, gray commute to and from work. But by the time I reached my goal, I realized that I actually needed $2,000 to really feel safe. Or maybe I would need more. And just when I settled in on what it would take for me to, for me to feel impervious to life's challenges, I looked out at that long gray landscape and remembered there was a sexy pair of black suede boots at Bloomingdale's, and I realized I needed to keep driving. Now, nearly 40 years later, I'm still driving. It took me a long time to realize that I actually didn't want to be Penelope. I really wanted to be with Penelope. <laughs> it took 30 years for me to admit that all the powerful, complicated feelings I had for a variety of women over the decades were actually crushes. I also realized that however much I coveted safety and security until I believed, really believed, that I could rely on myself, I'd never feel safe.
I stand before you now, a 60-year-old, proud, queer, married woman, proof positive. <laughs> Prove positive that it's never too late to make the life you've always longed for. Thank you. Beautiful. As a chubby, over-eager, nailed biter, I felt seen. <laughs> I've had so many crushes on so many Penelopes. Oh, that was beautiful. Thank you, Debbie. Next up, Jamaica Moana is an artist, rapper, creative director, and songwriter of Maori and Samoan descent. Spiritually entwined with Hokianga and Waikoto in the motherland of Aotearoa, whilst currently walking the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, she has toured extensively and has collaborated with the likes of Paul Mack and Johnny Seymour, supported Jungle Pussy and Nairi, and she co-founded the West Ball, an iconic ballroom event. Please welcome Jamaica. Hello, kia ora. How is everyone? I love it. Okay, so today I want to talk to you about how I became a queer community leader. So this came from four pivotal people in my life, and from birth I gained the support from my biological mother, Denise. So Denise, my mother, she's always had my back ever since... I grew up with five older brothers, so... They're all straight, and they could. there was a very visible difference that I stood out in my family. So once I started having a little hip to the side in family photos, my family knew the go. Something's up with me. And my mum knew immediately the nourishment and the decision that she had to captivate my love and my identity when I was so young. It could change my entire life, and it literally has. So her being able to love me since a young age before my family really understood these things. As, as I said, I grew up with five older brothers and a father that never had a arm's reach distance to a queer person. And when the queer person is literally the youngest of the family, it changes things up. I was really lucky to be able to teach my brothers the way to love queer people. It was a journey. In primary school, you know, when I'm walking out with mum's heels at a family dinner, it's... Yeah, it's not really the easiest thing, but I taught them that they know now the lessons of how to love and nurture queer people. So my mom, she always got me a part of talent agencies and got me a part of a performing arts high school, which led me to my next queer person. So I'm, today's all about the women and the queer people in my life. So when I started high school, I don't know if anyone's familiar, but there's a secondary dance competition called Bring It On. And when I was younger, I just wanted to be a star. Like every time, like today, people are like, are you nervous? I'm like, no, I love a light. I love a mic. This is what we're doing. <laughs> but yeah, so when I started Bring It On, I still wasn't out of the closet yet, but there was people within this group who had some form of, they knew I was different, but they loved it. They nurtured it, even though I was like, nah, not me, bro. <laughs> but so on this stage, I remember after a ton of rehearsals, I had to be really brave because my family was going to watch me do my first Lady Gaga dance solo in front of everyone, but I still wasn't out. So I honestly, 
I was living for it. I remember Alejandro was playing Just Came Out 2010, and I am straight, but living for the moment. That was me. <laughs> so that literally, Bring It On was harnessed from the, my role model at that time, Kalia. So Kalia is a part of the ballroom community now that we all know, or what we should know, but she's definitely taught me so much within school. And for me to be able to have my inspiration from my home life into high school, to have her within an arm's reach, it was so beautiful for that transition. Closely after that time, I really wanted to pursue this life of being a star. I was like, I love this, I love this feeling. I really started in little... Bankstown Art Centers doing this whole little vibe. But after that, we, we went into a dance crew. So when I started learning about, okay, this dance thing can be something that we can really do, it can be really fun and cute. I, I joined the Pioneers Mega Crew. And in 2012, we were one of the top crews in the, in the country, and that was led by a lion royalness. So after I learned my lessons from my mother, from Kalia, I was then sort of, sort of passed on to a lion. And in this part, when I went to, when I was a part of this dance crew, it was a collective of people. We didn't have money. We, did, we couldn't hire studios. So we would meet up in Liverpool Library, just in the car park, and we all had a similar lineage within each other. We all taught each other that your difference is not different. It's normal, whatever normal is supposed to be. So it was a really nice leap into this. I remember specifically a conversation I had, and it was with my sisters now, Taya and Jermaine, and they said to me, this was just like outside after school, and they said, hey, do you have a boyfriend? And nobody asked me that directly before. And I thought, okay, I'm feeling a lot of love right now. I could either say, no, 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 that's not me. Or I could finally say yes and see where that took me. And when I said, not that I had a boyfriend, but I was saying no, but I would like... The reciprocation was nothing but love. That it was a complete, beautiful, mutual circulation of non-judgment and just I felt really held. So that being, that was really the atmosphere that was around the time when we started the Pioneers. So on top of that, we were doing amazing things together. We were a part of Team Australia, um, representing the country in Las Vegas when I'm 15. So I got my little star time in Vegas. That was me living. I'm like, okay, yes, I joined this dance crew for a reason. Sorry, this clapping is getting a lot for this, this mic. She's saying, stop the hand movement. But yeah, I really loved my, myself pursuing this career this stardom, but also being loved each way within my queerness. Because I knew I was queer, at that point I knew, I thought I was just gay. I didn't really step into my non-binary identity just as yet. Of course, of like we educate ourselves along the way. But I remember a time when I was in Vegas and I was with all of my dance crew and a majority of them were queer. And we all just looked at each other and it was so lovely to have the support that I had at home here in Western Sydney, and we all felt loved and a collective of love together. So near after that time, in the Pioneers, it was good because a lot of the people, the pivotal people in my life, sort of handed me over to the next person. And when we came home, we, I remember we were doing a, a gig for Waitangi Day, which is a day celebrated for Aotearoa. And at Waitangi Day, I was doing the performance with the Pioneers. Again, I'm a star. Everyone, remember, I do performance. <laughs> but yeah, so we're doing, we're doing a cute little park gig. 
and Benji Ra was waiting on the side. And I, I never met her before. And I walked off the stage. I was 15 at the time. And she said, what's your name? How old are you? I said, I'm Jamaica. I'm 15. And she said, that'll work. And then from then, I started leaping again from my dance crew career further into ballroom. And ballroom Australia was initiated, started by Benji Ra here. And that's when I started my journey within the House of Slay. So in the House of Slay, it was so beautiful to again have another chosen collective that just solely loved me for who I am. And then knowing that this collective, this community can grow further. Each, each part of my life, I've learned a little different aspect to help me lead. Because I believe that we're not just community for a reason. There's little people within this community that can lead for the next generation. The generation is constantly shifting. So within Ballroom now, we have hundreds of people, over 10 houses within Australia that we all know that we, we harness everybody's collective together. Ballroom was founded upon black and trans women that, to this day, trans women of color are the most marginalized minority in the whole world. So we know that we... We utilize and always pay homage to the space of ballroom that was created to facilitate safety for these people, for trans people, for queer people. This is, these were the only spaces. People see it now as Vogue being, I want to go to the ball, I want to see the dip, I want to see it all. But we truly live for the culture because we know when we go to a ball, for a lot of people, it's the only place that people can be authentic and be themselves. So this has sort of led me, after all of these different things, the love from my mother, my high school, my dance crew experience and being in a house. Now I know as a community leader, I'm no longer in a house. I stand by myself. But I know now, I realized a couple years that people started looking at me the way that I looked at my role models. So at the beginning of my high school career, the person that I reached out within an arm's reach, that was me. So I had to start checking myself and being like, okay, every time I step into a space, there might be a non-binary person, a trans person in here that's looking at me that feels alienated in a different space, but I want them to feel touched and held anytime they see me. My job is I do, as mentioned, I was a co-founder, I am a co founder of the West Ball. We created the West Ball to defy all of the stigmatic view that it's, it's unsafe in the West. And yes, it may be for some people, but I like to show people that to stay authentic and unapologetic within themselves. We go to balls and live our lives and have such a great night, but I want people within the West Ball to attend the West Ball and to live confident lives afterwards. Walk to Liverpool Station feeling fab, sis. It's safe. I love that. And it's beautiful. There's, I know time's ticking, but there's this beautiful, <laughs> there's this young boy, his name's Andy. He lives in Liverpool and he is such a beautiful young boy, and he came to our West Ball workshops. And in his whole life, he's, he's grown up in Liverpool. He's only young, he's about 15, and he's never felt any lineage or access to people that he's seen on the internet. And to see, there's the clap again, to see it come full circle and know that, okay, the space that I'm providing is going to give him the start of this circulation for one day in a decade, he knows the tools to be able to pass this on. But yeah, so basically, 
all the lessons that we learn as queer people, it ingrains into history, not just within our minds, but for the next, it's generational for everybody. So these, learn, these learnings and these lessons that I've been given, I just wanna pass it on and ready to give it for the next person. But yeah, thank you so much for listening, everyone. If you haven't been to a ball, you really, really must. And um, what Jamaica was saying about Western Sydney is so true. There's stereotypes, but there's incredible queer community out there. Uh, the next Queer Stories after this one is at Blacktown Arts Centre, and I would love you to come along to that one too. Next up, Fahad Ali is a molecular biologist, science educator, and writer. He is a member of the Palestinian diaspora, a co-founder of the Queer Solidarity Film Festival, and the Muslims for Marriage Equality campaign group. He's a community advocate and organiser, and he performed this story at Queer Stories in Western Sydney last month. So if any of you came along then, you're lucky to get to hear it again. It was such a gorgeous piece and a perfect fit for today's theme, so I asked him to come back. Welcome, Fahad. I'm getting married. <laughs> I don't know when, or where, or even who to. <laughs> but those are all minor details as far as I'm concerned. I'm going to have a wedding that is big, boisterous, and likely to get me in trouble with the law. The best part is that you're all invited. Now, ordinarily, this is every Arab parent's dream. My mum and my aunts have been conspiring to find me a bride since before I could talk. Now, they didn't count on me wanting to be the bride myself. Um, I realized I was gay when I was 11. It happened in a single moment of revelation while watching Rage one afternoon. I took one look at Jesse McCartney shirtless and I knew that I was a fag. I kept this to myself until I was 17. When I came out to my mum, she burst into tears and told me, you're gonna get AIDS and die. So you can see where I get my sense of melodrama. <laughs> she would often tell me that all she wanted in life was to see me get married, start a family, and hold her grandchildren. I wanted that too, it just couldn't be with a woman. Mum would often try to coerce or bribe me though into considering it. Um, now when I was growing up, my parents had a strict prohibition on dating. But the moment I came out, they practically begged me to find a girlfriend. And a few years ago, my mum offered me this pearl of wisdom. You know, there are plenty of gay guys out there who are dating women. Oh, sorry, excuse me, married to women. Um, so when my mum met my good friend, Caitlin, she, she's a ferociously intelligent woman uh, with a PhD in literature, she tried to convince her to convert to Islam and marry me. <laughs> Um, none of these attempts were very persuasive, I have to say, but good on her for trying. Now, I wanted nothing more than for her to accept me as I was. I would bring up the men I was dating from time to time, only to watch her mood sour. A few years ago, when I asked her if she would like to meet my boyfriend at the time, she told me, no, I don't want to see him, I don't want to meet him, I don't want to look at him. So I thought this would last forever. 
Mum was the sort of person who would prepare enough food to feed a village and then freeze most of it for perpetuity. We're talking falafel, kibbeh, lentil soup, you name it, she had it all. I couldn't visit her house without taking home a week's worth of food. One day she told me, I really want a chest freezer. It just so happened that my then boyfriend's parents were moving house and were looking to get rid of a chest freezer. This was a perfect opportunity. I asked if it was still up for grabs and then called my mum. Mama, I said, I found you a chest freezer and it's yours for free. But we've got to pick it up from my boyfriend's place. I wasn't sure how she'd react. What would she say? Would she lose a plot? Would she launch a pair of slippers at me? Now, I got my answer when she rocked up to my ex-boyfriend's place in a ute. Um, so the, a freezer, of all things, led to a thaw in her opinions. I was so grateful for this. I wasn't exactly sure why, and I still think about it from time to time. Now, my mum meeting my partner, I tried, to I tried my best to prepare for it by giving him a little crash course on ethnic etiquette. Remember, you've got to call her auntie, I kept repeating. My brother had once introduced his girlfriend to my mum. She was a lovely young woman, but she made an unforg unforgivable mistake. She called my mum by her first name on their first meeting. The moment she was out of earshot, my mum looks at my brother and says, don't bring her here again. <laughs> Fortunately, my ex did a little better. I think my mum was expecting to meet some outrageous glitter-doused fairy. Um, she would often tell me that I couldn't possibly be gay because I was too masculine. I neglected to tell her that that is also what I put down on my grinder profile. <laughs> but instead of a fruity femme, she just met a beige middle-class white boy. Whatever it was, she seemed to like him, and she started to ask after him from time to time. A few months later, she even came with us to the opening night of the Palestinian Film Festival. We saw a film called It Must Be Heaven, directed by the celebrated Palestinian filmmaker Elias Suleiman. It's now one of my favorite films, but that first time that I saw it with my mum, I didn't know that it had a scene in a gay bar, and to my knowledge, the only gay kiss ever depicted in mainstream Palestinian film. Hopefully it won't be the last. For as long as I've been out, I felt pressure on all sides to be a good Muslim and to keep my sexuality to myself, or to cast off my Palestinian identity and to remake myself in the image of a white twink. On my 19th birthday, my friends took me to Ark. <laughs> Bad idea. A drag queen on stage called up everybody who was celebrating a birthday. And I, I was young and anxious, and I didn't want to be in the spotlight. Now I love it. Um, but my friends pushed me on stage against my will. One by one, the drag queen went through the lineup, asking everyone their names. They were all some flavor of white. Something like Patrick, Steve, John. So she gets to me. Fahad, I say. What? Fahad. Well, we're not going to bother with you, are we? Many of my early experiences in the gay community were the same. 
Was I really in need of liberation from family, religion, and homeland if this was all I got in return? Time and time again, I have heard, you know those Palestinians hate gay people, right? It implies that our communities are static, that only white settlers are capable of growth and complexity, that only their communities are capable of internal debate and political movement. And yet, there's a gay kiss in a mainstream Palestinian film. And yet, my mother let go of her prejudice for the sake of love. Mum died in 2020 of August, um, August of 2020, after a long battle with cancer. She'll never get to come to my wedding, but I can only hope that she'd be happy for me and that she'd love me for whoever I am and whoever I become. I just want to close by reading a short poem by the Palestinian poet laureate, the late Mahmoud Darwish, who, imprisoned by Israel for his poetry at the age of 19, wrote this poem dedicated to his mother in the hope that he would one day see her again. I yearn for my mother's bread and my mother's coffee and my mother's touch. Childhood memories grow up inside me day after day. I love life with a passion because if I were to die, I would be ashamed of my mother's tears. Take me if I come back one day as a scarf for your eyelashes and cover my bones with grass, baptized by your footsteps. Bind us together with a lock of your hair, with a thread that trails from the back of your dress. I could grow into godhood if I but touch the depths of your heart. Set me if I return as fuel for your fire on your stove and as a clothesline on the roof of your home. Without your daily blessings, I am too weak to stand. I am old. Give me back the stars of childhood that I, that I may chart the homeward quest back with the migrant birds, back to your waiting nest. Thank you. Thank you, Fahad. We're going to stay in the world of poetry and introduce our final storyteller for tonight. Joelle Taylor is an award-winning poet, playwright, author, and former slam champion. She's widely anthologized and the author of four full poetry collections and three plays. Her latest poetry collection, Kanto and Other Poems, was published in June 2021 and won the T.S. Eliot Prize. A BBC4 Radio 4 documentary, a BBC Radio 4 documentary, Butch, featuring poems from Kanto and presented by Joelle, was broadcast in May 2020. And Joelle has recently been commissioned to develop Kanto, I really like saying the title, <laughs> into a spoken word theatre show. Joelle regularly performs across the UK and internationally, touring to Australia, Finland, Singapore, Spain, Estonia, Brazil, and Portugal. We're very lucky to have her here. Please welcome Joelle Taylor. Big up you mentors, how you doing? It's an absolute joy and pleasure and privilege to be here, particularly to be part of Queer Stories with the legendary Maeve Marsden. So I want to tell you a little bit of story, bring you a story in from London. Um, and it's about really the genesis of this book, Conto. 
which I also like saying, particularly on the BBC. <laughs> it's a real word, which is in a very, very obscure dialect of Italian that hasn't been spoken in about 5,000 years. And it means to narrate a personal story, and it's got absolutely nothing to do with it being a book of cantos about women. <clears throat> so, I want to start with um, a quote, which you'll probably know. You leave in the morning with everything you own in a little black case. Jimmy Somerville. It is England, 1983. Section 28, which outlaws the positive representation of homosexuality, is still six years away, but your family, friends, your neighbours have already passed the bill in their hearts. You're 15 years old and accustomed by now to being spat at by people you used to love, who used to love you, people you used to play football with. You're used to grown men pushing you against walls, to girls moving away from you in the school changing rooms. Everything changes in the changing rooms. It is there that you decide to leave. In 1983, we didn't come out. We got out. We are a community of exiles, unwelcome in our own homes, in our own bodies. And so you join the great migration of the gays, from your small Lancashire mill town toward London, that grinning metropolis with its wide, open, grey arms. And when you begin the journey, you are ugly, plain, unwanted, both invisible and the centre of attention. And then you arrive, and you find the Maryville, your first dyke dive bar. <laughs> it takes three years for you to open the door. Scene one. Exterior, night. A main road in London. LX1. Street lights watch a woman pass and text each other. FX1, the sound of a door opening into a chest cavity. A lone woman walks briskly, head down, holding invisible bouquets. Ahead of her is a hunched building with its hands in its pockets, bracketed by gossiping fairy lights. LX2. A neon sign flashes its pink dilate. Maryville, the sign says. The woman pushes open the door and enters her own body. At the bar, she orders a drink, and when it arrives, it is her breath. Music is playing. It is the sound of someone being listened to. She notices that she is sitting at every table. When the woman asks her to dance, the whole of her past stands up to dance with her. Her classmates, her teachers, the manager of the shop she worked in over Christmas, the newspaper proprietor, the street she grew up on, an adjacent town, her parents and grandparents, the kid who waited for her after school, the song ends, the world opens, Venus rises. Now, you might not know the story of Venus Rising, but just as an aside, that was the biggest lesbian nightclub in Europe. <laughs> and 
I literally moved next to it. <laughs> Thank you, that's my greatest work. <laughs> Let's talk about the door again. There's only three inches of wood between ugly and handsome, exile and belonging. And it's in the Maryville that you meet the rough-faced dykes who are to become lifelong friends. They are ghosts who live inside you. They haunt your smile. And I want to introduce you to a couple of the characters from the Maryville. There is Valentine, a black leather stud. Valentine. Born right body, wrong day. Valentine flicks her lighter in the corner of the club and white women flutter. Tonight, she has dressed as the inside of a mouth, a hand-sewn suit excised from a cured night sky. Black leather has its own skincare routine. It listens to its mother. I've heard it said that some girls give birth to themselves on the backs of motorbikes, invent the wind, let the road uncurl from between their legs, the lemniscate motorway, something British and unbidden. I know why we're drawn to the corners. It's where the road cannot reach us. Every part of a woman is a weapon if you know how to hold her, Valentine says. The corner flicks a morse, and in the dark, white hearts beat like moths against a headlight. So now I want to introduce you to another character. Her name is Angel. She's a young boy, which is a kind of young butch, and she's still navigating her trauma, still teaching her fists to cry. Angel. When Angel looks in the mirror, it looks away first. Star fist, open jaw, how the shine becomes you, clean friend. Taller than yesterday, spine and unravelling plot you, odd insistence. My king of the blue tattoo. Eyebrow pinned Prince Butterfly when you walked in the room, it became you. How you brought the silence in with you, how you brought the night to its knees back there where the quiet ones go. And now the night won't stop texting. How many times have we walked home, you and I, only to find home, walking softly behind us. I have seen you leap over language to push a man back inside himself, throw pint glasses like seeds, speak to every woman as though she were your mother. I have seen your fists sob. At the centre of every boy is a bare room. And inside a swinging light bulb, a wire-thin girl dances, stays with you, even when you look away. Angels don't fall from heaven. They leave at closing time. Unscrew their fucks in the backs of black cabs. Abandon their bodies beneath a girl, beneath a duvet, beneath the wet, dilated night. 
on fire. And we are on, sorry about that. Okay, clap. <laughs> uh, stop. <laughs> and we are untamed, a wilderness of women teaching each other how to kiss, to fuck, to believe in our own hands. Boys, soft-skinned and shaven, shelter from the sun in the shadows cast by elder butches. Sketch out a connus with billiards and recreate the moment of conception. There are only so many holes a boy can fall down, but here she is again. And maybe the film reel jumps a little here, and by that, I mean heart, and when I say heart, what I mean is idea. Boys are newly planted as she passes, there's a reason storms are named after women. Feel their roots reach out to each other, bend into her, yes, and one boy, her tongue a diving board, launches into her fathom. Nothing as concrete as her back's clap. Nothing as young as slapped palms, but still, the bar knows what it knows, that a tongue is a bed, and this boy understands how to make it origami the sheets into something wild and confident, a swan or the Hadron Collider. <laughs> and they will practice their careful all night. Morning will leave by the back door, never call. But the boy dreams, thinks, maybe this time something will be born, thinks, if I had a baby, I would call it flinch. Thank you. There are others. Thousands of othered others. We make our own beds, but no longer lie in them. We tell the truth in them. We hold each other, fall into each other's mouths, gestate fists, learn the tenderness of violence. They call us the butches, they call us leather dykes, BDSM, we wrong-walking women, we fellow-faced few. We're a community founded on trauma, in leather, in chains, in suits, in sawn-off miniskirts, all of us ghosts, all of us rising again. This is for my dead friends, it's called Trauma the opera. And for you, my darling, my high priest of pious pornography, poetry pimp, you can fuck my Soho pink sacred heart. I want to write a book in which we live. A story where the girl gets the girl and the girl is herself. A novel where we return to find a five-year-old child opening a bedroom door and shotgun, don't do that. There is still so much to learn. Stop all that opera. But how do I write that if war is God's way of teaching Americans geography, then maybe this Oh, God, is God's way of teaching lesbians history. How do I ask her to lift skin? Organize dust, pin back the night, excavate glue. I know that if you press your ear against my shell, you will hear Bangkok. 
my Kosan road, or the itch of moss-side pavements, the call of corner boys slouching with bees in their mouths. Tonight, you will hear reindeer over Rotherham, children, my mother's funeral laugh. You'll hear black women teaching, scratching chalk outlines on blackboard skin, unpicking acronyms by candlelight. My shell sings the sirens of Chechnya. My song seduces war. Listen, can you hear a child ticking? The slow dance of bones beside non-pen brothels. My dropped vase, Kintsugi cunts, paint all the scars in pound shop. Glitter girl are all women inside other women. And how do I write that you are there too, pretty dust dyke? Curled deep in your cave of remarkable horror, inside yourself, Uroboros, smiling, and oh, putting your headphones on, staring into your hands, unscrewing your fists. Every time you open your mouth, a white man jumps out and eats you. If God, if war is God's way of teaching Americans geography, then maybe right is God's way of teaching women. Woman, how do I write? There is a grave at the grave meeting of my legs and no one goes there after dark except with nets to catch all these beautiful ghosts, pinning them to novels, pages plucked, vejazzled. How do I write? Stone. And while we're at it, how should I write? My beautiful boys, my friends, I had all your ghost babies. They live together at the edge of the woods and don't write home anymore. Thank you for listening. Lay a wreath where the two roads pleat. Photocopy my photograph. Return to me once a year. Tell them a story. Make me live. Thank you. What a note to end on. Fantastic. Thank you, right? Queer's Talent Tales. I fucking love it. Thank you so much for coming out tonight, for bringing your warmth and energy and fabulous queerness to this big old house once again and this wonderful festival. The next Queer Stories is on April 9 at Blacktown Arts Centre with an all First Nations lineup curated by Stephen Ross for Colour Me Queer and hosted by Stephen as well, who you may have seen at past Queer Stories events. There's also a Queer Stories on the Central Coast at the Naughty Noodle House in Etalong on April 16th if you feel like a road trip or if you're tuning in from near there on the live stream. If you're tuning in from Brisbane, Queer Stories has a massive show at the Brisbane Comedy Festival on May 29th and tickets just went on sale. That's enough plugging. Please a round of applause again for Nat and Leah, our beautiful interpreters, to the incredible Opera House team who've worked so hard to put this festival together and this absolutely fabulous lineup for sharing themselves with you tonight. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.
Watch this talk and others at All About Women 2022 on stream. The new streaming service from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching. Follow the Sydney Opera House on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.